everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind, the podcast devoted to all sorts of entertainment from the 80s and up. We are now into the year 1991. We're discussing the comedies of 1991 as part of the huge array of movies. Uh, one of the best years, I think, ever. I'm your host, Michael, and uh, John's on the other side. How you doing, John? Hi! Was it clearly that I stumbled for a second there? I'm like, who am I hosting this with again? <laughs> Oh, so he came so close to Satan Jacob, and I was like, no, no, hit the brakes. Uh, this episode we'll be discussing uh, L.A. Story, Hot Shots, and then uh, Naked Gun 2.5, and, and the highly forgotten Pure Luck. I, I don't think anybody ever talks about this movie. The only time you ever see it is like one of those collections of four movies or more from uh, that studio. Um, well, let, I think we should probably talk about that one first. Okay. Because, okay, I vividly remember seeing this movie in theaters oh yeah and so i know and i remember liking it you know when i was 10 so uh, do with that what you will <laughs> um i think this movie is okay but i also think that it's boring as hell there are like, times where it just drags danny glover looks so bored while martin short is sweating his ass off to get the jokes to work yeah well that's it i don't think either either of those two are floating it in even if dan glover was tired it's it fits in with the fact that it's a character that doesn't really want to deal with martin short's antics so it plays so i i, I never read it as him looking tired it just kind of looked like you know what it is uh so i, I feel like they gave their you know, gave themselves a hundred percent on this movie, but it's, I just don't think the jokes really land and, you know, it's like, it, it's wacky. It's silly at times, but it also changes tone so weirdly. Yeah. Well, this is a Francis Bieber adaptation. Francis Bieber for about 10 years was the hottest guy to go to, to either bring a movie to America or adapt one of his movies to America. Do you know who Francis Bieber is? I do not. I did. I did read that uh, in in after watching this film. I did read that this was a remake of a was French film. I think. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, okay. I, that makes a lot more sense now. He had a couple. Film. He had a couple American movies uh, in the early '80s. Partners in the Man with One Red Shoe, but they both bombed and, and they didn't really take off. It was when uh, Three Men and a Baby exploded. All of a sudden, everybody went to him. So he did his first directorial effort called Three Fugitives, which he done both versions, the American and the French version, uh, and that was a huge hit. Not as big as Three Men and a Baby, but uh, still pretty big hit. And uh, then he did this, uh, Out on a Limb with Matthew Broderick. There's something else okay. in there. I know he did Birdcage. And I, there's a couple of movies in there, but for a while there, they were just like constantly going to him for his style. But I think all of his movies have tonal problems. It feels like there's always... Uh, wacky comedy, schmackety, schmackety going on with actual crimes. And that's where the tonal shifts always kind of stumble. Yeah, but like like with watching uh, Twins, where you know, it's it's silly, goofy, and then all of a sudden, some real um, real violence occurs, and you're just kind of like, wait a minute. This, what, is, this is a lighthearted comedy. Why yeah. are we... Like, this, this, is a, this was a comedy where Martin Short is uh, is going down to search who has incredible bad luck. And is searching for the daughter of a uh, of an executive who also has incredibly bad luck. So it's just send send the worst person in the world possible to look for the worst you know the worst lucked person 
Yeah, you well, know, that's plus. the thing that Francis Bieber always did. He always had, like, these high-concept plots, uh, but also, like, always crossing two exact opposites. Like, Three Men and a Baby is these three bachelors who are, you know, womanizers, basically, and they give them responsibilities. Three Fugitives, you start off with Nick Nolte, who's the ex-con, and they give him Martin Short, who who's trying to be a con. And in this one, you have the high-convoluted... Uh, uh, the person who's actually in charge is Danny Glover, who's the straight man who knows what he's doing, but they have to lie to get Martin Short to believe that he's going to be the leader and they need him desperately, but it's because he's such a clumsy doofus. They think that the, 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 the sheer fact that they believe that he's so clumsy that you're going to follow the same exact path as, their, as his daughter is <laughs> stupid. <laughs> but things that there, there are things in this that work. I think the airport bit where he uh, ends up... He's like, I've never missed a flight ever. Yeah, they're always late. Don't know why. <laughs> and uh, it's like you just—it's always because of whatever stupid bad luck thing. In the case of this, I think his his luggage was was pulled and and screened, and it's like, oh well, well we're now going over here. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing with Martin Short. He doesn't seem to be interested in being a leading man, even though his name would be on the title of a poster. He wants to play a character. And he does certain things in, the, in his movies, whatever, to kind of separate himself. Now, mind you, there's inner space in Three Fugitives where he's basically playing himself. But in this one, he, he dyes his hair red just to give himself some character aspect. Uh, he does the French accent later this year with uh, uh, Father of the Bride. And, and there's a simple wish and stuff like that. He didn't really seem to be interested in being the main character unless he was well, weird. Well, see, I, remember, I did read about the, the hair dye thing, and that's because he did, what was it, Clifford? Uh, where he was the kid. Oh, fuck, I forgot about that movie, yeah. That was done, that was done the same, in the same year, but that film got delayed, so he had, he had done, done this thing where he's a man-child, and then uh, just went and uh, kept the hair because it was too late to change it, so he was just like, screw it, I'm red-headed in this movie. So it just kind of, weirdly, you know, with these two films being spaced apart, you wouldn't have thought about it, but had these things came out, it would have been kind of weird to have Huh, there's two movies this year with Martin Short and Red Hair. Yeah, I uh, I haven't seen that movie in forever, but I remember it was, uh, yeah, it sat on the shelf for years because Orion Pictures went bankrupt and they had to liquefy, or what do you call it, liquidate? Liquefy, jeez. Uh, what am I, I'm, I'm a fucking moron. Uh, liquidate a lot of their assets and just build up some equity in order to release the ones they had already filmed. And yeah, Clifford sat on the shelf for a, a while. Yeah, I kind of wish that one never got released myself. Yeah, I, but... did, I know some people were fans of it, but I think they saw it when they are very young, and I just I can't see if... Um, so Pure Luck is kind of in the middle of that ground, too. I think the younger you saw it, the more you like it. I saw it at 14 or 15, and I think by that point I thought, well, there's some interesting aspects. I know what sold me on it in the trailer, though, is that crazy fucking inflatable suit when he gets stung by the bee. Oh, yeah. The thing that apparently kept in the back of his mind, and that's where Jim... Uh jimmy glick came from yeah uh yeah martin short is a very interesting actor who's never really had much success but everybody loves working with him and he always kind of commits to his characters and he just keeps going from there yeah it's like i'm glad i got a chance to revisit this one because it's been a long i mean i know i'd seen it on video sometime after a theatrical but God, it's you're you're going at over well over twenty years yeah. since I've seen this. I'm uh, I next year I have the revisit of Captain Ron, which I haven't seen in twenty years, but I saw that in theaters, and that uh, I'm wondering if that holds up. All right, so our second film, actually, 
I feel like I've seen the rest of the movies in the theater. I know I saw uh, Hot Shots in the theaters. Uh, I saw that with my whole family. Now, if you didn't see Hot Shots in the theater, did you see it? Yes, I did. Do you remember the Mr. Bean short that was before the movie? I don't. There was a short film. Now, they had already done the sketch in the show. But this time they, they you know, shot it widescreen and much better production value. It's the one where he's supposed to meet the queen and he's standing in line. And the whole time he's just constantly fidgeting as he's trying to fix stuff or whatever and just constantly embarrassing himself. It's only like five minutes long. And we were just roaring so big. It's such a good warm-up uh, to Hot Shots. It's like an opening comic. And I have no idea where that is. It's not on the Blu-ray. There's nowhere online I can find that special feature. You only find the original version that was shot on video uh, for the Mr. Bean show. Hmm. That sucks, because I kind of would like to see it again. Yeah. Because yeah, I genuinely do not remember it. I know I saw it in theaters, because... Uh, I got. I think my first on-screen crush was from this film, and that was Valerie Galino. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this didn't open huge. It got, I think, a decent opening, but I remember it just kept sticking around and sticking around and sticking around. It was a like a mid-budget movie at the time, like $20 million. A lot of it is you see it on screen. I mean, first off, the whole airplane scenario, the Top Gun scenario that they're spoofing is expensive to film, but I got, I got to tell you, there's gags, non-stop gags. I've never seen a movie with more gags in it than this film. They're constantly well, everywhere. And what's funny is all the gags land. Like, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of any of these that fail. Yeah, is it's this, like, is this the best spoof movie? No, I, I would still, I'd probably go with the original Naked Gun or maybe Airplane. Yeah, I, but... Airplane I don't think holds up as well. I think some of the gags age. Um, but they probably say that about Hot Shots too. But uh, Naked Gun is probably—I think Naked Gun has a better plot, but I don't think the jokes are as—they're uh, almost as close. Um, but I think Hot Shots just—it changed the formula. I think the speed, the the uh, sheer amount of stuff going on everywhere at all times, uh, changed the spoof comedy, and that's a problem though, because the the guys who would do like was it the Feinberg, whatever you know the guys that did—they started off doing um. The Spy Hard. Movie, yeah, it's like Spy Hard and Mafia and a lot of these films that kind of came out out there. And then the da-da-da movies. Yeah, all whatever. Uh, if it had the word movie at the end of it, it was probably going to be terrible. And it's all from these same two guys, uh, Neighbors and Feinberg, I think are their names. And, uh, God, it's just the high shots for a short period of time got it right. And then after that, they're like, well, let's just take all the new popular movies that are coming out. We don't know anything about them. We've just seen the trailer. Let's make jokes about that. I was like, that's not how that works. Not yeah, at all. That's the, Hot Shots is really how you do these sort of parody comedies. I mean, Airplane, Naked Gun, Naked Gun Two and a Half, when we talked about that. You, you can make all the jokes and references and sight gags and stuff that you want in these movies, but what makes these movies good is that if you took out all those jokes, there's still a plot. Yeah. There's still a story. There's something that hangs these things together. It might... It not necessarily has to be threadbare. I mean, I think there's... We'll, we'll talk, I think we'll probably have to talk about one of these things later on that has kind of a threadbare plot to it, and it's really relying on the gags. But uh, this basically is just... It's, it's Top Gun and... Uh, with with a uh, little more of a uh, what is it uh, trying to 
Why can't I think of the damn plot of Hot Shots? Well, it, it, the commentary is on the fact that they're forcing these situations so that they can get this big corporation to come in and replace all the ships. It's just a pair yeah, to play, just, whatever. Yeah, it's all yeah, corruption. Try, it's a mil military contractor uh, trying to outbid the uh, current the current line of planes to get their own planes. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you know, it, yeah, it's not, not the most, you know, most elaborate plot, but it's not threadbare to that. It's like, why do we have these scenes connecting? Well, yeah, also, look, so that's the main plot, but there's also the references to other movies, and they've always done this. They've done this since Airplane, but it doesn't disrupt the movie. There's a coherence to it. So the part where they're making out and they do, you know, the sex scene, uh, it's a parody of Nine and a Half Weeks, um, you know, that fits with the plot. The fact where he has the dream sequence where he's singing to her, it's, it's, it still fits. Um, we have the fabulous, you know, it's like Top Gun and Dance with Wolves are like the main parodies in yeah. this. And the Dance with Wolves stuff works really well. It's kind of surprising that you could fit that film with <laughs> Top Gun and you, and you don't necessarily blink an eye. Well, what's shocking is that Dance with Wolves came out like November of 1990, which this movie had to have been in production already. And I mean, this came out in August of '91, and I just I'm shocked that they were able to fit it in and still make a coherent plot. Well, it's probably that was shot very at the very end. Like maybe they had an idea for a wraparound, you know, to get him to the to the Top Gun stuff. Hell, it might have. For all we know, it could have been the Rambo stuff that they used in in uh, the Hot Shots Part yeah, Two. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one carryover from both movies that I absolutely fucking love is how Lloyd Bridges is basically all ceramic. Every single part of him is replaced by something else. <laughs> oh, um, did, you, did you read who he, uh, who was going to be playing Lloyd Bridges' part? No. Originally, it was supposed to be George C. Scott. Wow, that doesn't... And no. That, uh, I would have been down for that, actually. I, I would have very been interested to see how different that would have been. Can George C. Scott handle comedy? I mean, yes, you have to I, play it straight, but I just don't see that. Oh, I, I have a feeling that's probably what would have made it work is the fact that he'd probably just say these exceedingly absurd things, and you just feel like, wait, what? Yeah, well, maybe. I, I mean, now, well, I think it's interesting is that they cast Charlie Sheen in this, because the previous year he was in a Top Gun ripoff called Navy Seals. In 1990 was like the two movies, Firebirds and Navy Seals, were direct, absolute, <laughs> deliberate ripoffs of Top Gun. Yeah, well, and that's also the thing is he's. I think he can handle comedy very well at that time. Yeah, he was. He's very funny in this. He's, you know, hell, he's very funny in the in the Major League movies, and it's just kind of a shame that. You know, his career kind of took the trajectory it did. Yep. <laughs> he did that to himself, though. But um, though I was thinking that uh, this is what saved John Cusack's career more than once. Because uh, I didn't know this at the time, but he had four movies in 1987. All four bombed. He didn't work for like another two and a half years when he got that TV show, The Famous Teddy Z. Which was critically acclaimed, but didn't last more than one season. But the guys who did Hot Shots were fans of the show, and they cast him in this. And that gave him another decade of work. And then because of his relationship with Charlie Sheen, that got him on Two and a Half Men, and that gave him the next decade of work. So that's, that's kind of cool. Well, it's like, yeah, there's... Uh, God, the, wall, the, the washout stuff with his walleye yeah. vision. 
I I gotta say, I, that plays. I think that's one of the few things that plays better theatrically than it does at home. Oh yeah, because the screen's so much bigger. Yeah, it's just you. The, I'm not one to ra- uh, to rave that you can only see movies in theaters if they're of a certain scope. But I will say, some things are designed to be that big. Yeah. But yeah, this is a big hit. We got a sequel two years later, which I can't wait to discuss because I kind of think the sequel's a little bit better because they picked something even more absurd. Like, I, I think Top Gun's a stupid fucking movie. I can't believe it was so successful. It just reeks of 80s macho bullshit. And uh, so I love seeing it mocked, but the Rambo movies, holy crap. By the point, <laughs> by the point that uh, Part 2 came out, we had sat through Rambo 3, and that is just a fucking cartoon, and I'm, I'm so eager to discuss it. I feel like there's something else in here that I was going to say, but I can't remember. So we can just go on to uh, uh, Naked Gun two and a half, uh, the even more successful sequel, but I don't think as good, especially since I had already seen Police Squad, <laughs> and they reused some of the gags. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's the problem with Naked Gun two and a half is just it really tries to be on the same level as the first one, so much so that it. Yeah, it's like, as you said, it's recycling gags from the TV show. And it's just kind of, it was funny the first time I saw it, you're kind of, you know, beating the dead horse again. But uh, it's also, I in watching it this time, I really just, I couldn't find it funny because of, it, it, the story is basically the cold nuclear oil companies are trying to crush uh, renewable energy sources. So you were angry. Yeah, I kind of got mad too. Yeah. I was like, God damn it, that's a true story. <laughs> I'm instantly going, wow, this isn't very funny anymore. Because <laughs> this is 1991 and we're still watching and things are still coming out about how, how these people crushed renewable energy and keep crushing renewable energy. Is it, I can separate OJ the murderer from OJ the actor, and I can still enjoy his ridiculous performances in these movies. Is that weird? No, no, I, I totally get that. It's I, I still find it hilarious because of the retrospect of OJ was supposed to be the Terminator. Yeah, and <laughs> now all I can think and, of him as Nordberg, <laughs> the most yeah, accident-prone like, fucking doofus. <laughs> yeah, it's like he had he definitely had some charm to him that you know you sit there and like oh this is you know I can enjoy this and. He's kind of like, just try not to think of what happened after all this. Yeah. the uh, I think some of the gags really work. I think the whole sex shop part is fucking hilarious. I think George Kennedy might be funnier than Leslie Nielsen in this one. Because his reactions yes. are so, yes. like, just shocking and weird. When he picks up that fucking, like, chainsaw, whatever it is, dildo. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a jackhammer dildo thing. <laughs> is this a bust? <laughs> yes, it is. It's quite impressive, but that's not the point. Which, sadly... Well, see, here's the dumb thing, is they started airing Police Squad on television during the summer, right before this came out, to help cross-promote. So I had already seen that joke, and I had already seen the joke where they're shooting at each other, but they're only, like, two feet apart, and they throw the guns at each other. And that was a mistake. I think they should have saved showing uh, Police Squad, like, after the movie had been out for a month or two. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh... That's that is also kind of the problem is that it's it also didn't have it wasn't written by like Zucker Abrams and Zucker it was I think 
Zucker and David Zucker and someone else. Well, sort of because at, yeah, at this point Abrams has moved on. He's involved in Hot Shots, and Zucker has the other Zucker has just come off of the Ghost of all things. These are like breakneck switchings. So I feel like one Zucker brother was really in charge, and he he just it, when they're not together, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of where the decline in quality of like this this film, and then definitely with the next one. Yeah. Well, like, also, Leslie Nielsen overexposed himself in this genre for the next decade. My God, I know that's where the money was, but you needed to mix it up. Nobody else in this genre did this. Yeah, that's that's kind of the... I always... It was weird because in finding out that Leslie Nielsen was a serious actor, because I always thought him as Drebin. I always thought him as a, as a comedic actor, and then you also start going back, you know, back in time, and you start seeing what he did. It's like... Oh, I mean, that was the joke in Airplane, was that you took a serious actor and you made him say silly things. Yeah. And you just kind of ran with it from that point on. Yeah, everybody else that did these kind of movies went on, or, you know, I mean, Charlie Sheen came back, I think, for a couple of the scary movies. But there's a big gap. There's like a decade between those. And Val Kilmer never came back. Excuse me. And then, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Well, there is uh, how Carrie Elways did Robin Hood, Men in tights after hot shots but that isn't anywhere nearly as good it's it's a cult favorite but it's still not as good as hot shots but yeah leslie nielsen just kept doubling down over and over and over and over with this genre and i think every time it was just weaker results yeah it's kind of it it makes me sad that one of his last one of his last movies and mill brooks's is dracula dead and loving it yeah like, 2001 I, a space travesty <laughs> I mean, I, I still, I really wish, I want Mel Brooks to make one more movie before he goes, just yeah, so that he doesn't end the career on that. Yeah, I just don't think it's going to happen, but I, I kind of no, count oh, the producers. No, I, I count the producers because he produced and wrote it, so that's close enough, and plus he directed the original, so it's still based on, but I'm letting that one, just that's that's it for me, because I do not like directors I did and loving it. <laughs> um, yeah, so this was a massive hit, uh, of course it led to the third one, which we'll discuss in a few years from now, maybe. Um, so our fourth and final film is a fucking masterpiece. I, I every time I watch this, it gets better. I get. I the, love this movie yeah. so much. L.A. Story is the most underrated comedy of 1991. It is absolute perfection. And the older you get, the more you appreciate how delicate he balanced all of this. Yes, is a little too insider jokey. Uh, I'm not from L.A., but you lived oh, in California, yeah. so you kind of get the the funniest. I was say the funniest thing in this entire film well yeah i guess i guess i'll cut is the earthquake bit because if you've lived any any time in southern california at least a decent amount and gone through a few earthquakes you get to that point where you just kind of you don't necessarily register it at a certain at a certain uh level where it's just like they're, they're sitting here in this restaurant you know everything's shaky it's like what do you think it is eh, it can't be more than a four in the background, people are, you know, an entire table just moving in the background from one side of the screen yeah. to the other. <laughs> I think my favorite gag is him trying to get into the hip new restaurant, having go through a fucking background check and interview. <laughs> so, will you be having the chicken or the fish? And he starts whispering to the chef. He goes, he can't have the chicken. He can have the chicken. Uh, your next appointment <laughs> is two weeks from next Thursday or whatever, or three months from It's so absurd. And... Um, and then when I think they finally got into the restaurant, it was absolutely pathetic, like level of food, like just a scoop and a scoop, and that was it. You're paying like a hundred dollars. Oh yeah, that's that is uh, 
all those very fancy restaurants, it you're paying for the name, not not the dish itself. Yeah, or or the fact that he has to be basically this wacky performer for the news, and you can tell he's just exhausted by it. He has no emotional investment at the same time, and everybody. They do it better in The Weatherman with Nicolas Cage, but everybody looks at you to decide your week, and you're an asshole if you fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm I'm curious if you think this too. The uh, Woody Harrelson plays his boss, and at you know one point he's predicting the weather, he's recording the weather in advance, and he ends up just saying, "Oh, it's gonna be sunny," and it turns to turns out to be a bad rainstorm, uh, and he gets fired for it. And is it just me, or does it feel like it's an ad-lib bit where Woody Elsie gets on the elevator, and the door, he's like, you're fired, I don't want to see your face again. Oh, yeah. The door's closed, but they don't close all the way, and they just open up, and he's like, I told you, I don't want to see your face again. Yeah. Well, I really think that was something Steve Martin probably thought of, like, on the spot or whatever, because he's such a fast mind. But he's also very thorough in his jokes he understands the absurdities uh not just like what i hate about jokes are like this will never happen and you know what's going to happen it, it's surprising stuff happens but there's some thought put into it and it's not you know smack you on the nose obvious like you saw it coming from a mile away and that's what i love about steve martin this is his best year um 87 oh, best well hold on 87 Sorry. might be better I, I will say it's the best joke in this film is him describing this this painting scene where he's just going off about you know it's like you know, <laughs> this, this whole thing you know it's like this the way he's holding her it's so lewd and you know, it's just it's just a shot of of these four actors you know Steve Martin uh, his the love interest uh, her her boyfriend at the time and her the friend Ariel who you can tell she is she's trying her hardest not to crack up. Yeah, and it's and it's failing. Yeah, he's, and, he, he, and maybe she's gone through this with him before, and so yeah, he just keeps going on and on. You think he's done, and then he comes up with more absurdities, and then you finally see it, and you're like, what? And, yeah, just a, just a giant red smear on the wall. <laughs> I, again, I'm sure it's a I'm sure it's a legit painting. I I'm not an art uh, major, critic, or anything like that. I don't know anything about it. I, but I have no doubt that's a genuine painting. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot about the absurdities of L.A. life. So, yes, I mean, it, it, it already tells you this with the title. It was a critically acclaimed hit. Uh, it did okay, but it was so expensive. Caracol was one of those companies that was desperate for clout. And so they would give out these huge paychecks, massive budgets to people that they wanted under their banner. And it cost their ass almost every single time. You think a movie was a huge hit? It probably wasn't because they spent so much. And that's why, while they have a lot of notorious films, they didn't last very long because they would just spend so much cash. Yeah, I, I will say this. I'm very glad they did. Now, one thing we should bring up also is that this, as much as this is a love letter to L.A., this is also a love letter to Shakespeare, because it's it borrows bits from you know, Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest, and then they also, for some weird reason, they paraphrase the uh, Gravedigger scene from Hamlet. Yeah, I thought that was Rick really Moranis strange. Of all, <laughs> with Rick Moranis of all people playing a weird British dude. Yeah, this it's, is uh, this is Steve Martin cast you know just casting a line out to see every single friend and cameo he could possibly get in this because this is the only movie he's ever directed. He's written many movies. This is the only one he ever directed, and boy, everybody shows up in this movie. Yeah, it's like I mean, this film and the player 
I think are the two best films about LA. Yeah, or, or in the business period, because while it's not true, about true. movies, it's on the outside of the entertainment, like the outer edge of entertainment business. True, true that. I think it's hilarious. My, the the really cute bit is when uh, Victoria Tennant calls her mother up, <laughs> and it's clearly oh, it's Terry Jones, <laughs> yeah. and uh, they play tuba together, <laughs> or tuba and piano, right? Yeah. Oh, one one thing I remember reading, uh, and I think. I think I see part of the original intent in the background of the first shot of this, that the freeway sign that is guiding uh, Steve Martin in his love life and stuff was originally, I guess, supposed to have been tinkered with by an alien. Oh. And in the background where he's uh, first, you know, talking is a, is a, it's a long shot where you see in him talking to the, the, the sign in the background. It's, I guess it's supposed to be a plane, but I also kind of was looking at kind of going, I could buy that as a UFO, too. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into it. Yeah, there is some supernatural metaphysical kind of whimsy to all of this. So if that's not your bag, a little fantasy element, uh, you're probably going to get annoyed. If you hate Sarah Jessica Parker, <laughs> you're really going to be annoyed. I think she's actually the weakest part of this movie, which, I mean, it's necessary for him to discover that he's not with the right person. But uh, I just found her insanely annoying. And this is what made her career. This movie, everybody was hot to trot for her after this. It's weird. Well, it's, it was the one where she wasn't playing just simply a you know someone's girlfriend, like just off you know like just off to the side. She was a character, and granted, yes, that's kind of the point. Is she's the bubbly, airheaded, you know, beach, you know, Venice Beach going Sandy, uh, spelled with was it capital S, little A, little N, capital D, little E. Big E with a star. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, oh, you have a normal name. <laughs> um, no, I think her best performance comes next year with uh, Honeymoon in Vegas. Uh, I used to think that she was the throwaway girlfriend, but I watched it again like last week. And it's more depth to it than you, you think when you're a kid. Uh, there's a lot going on behind her eyes, and she's really trying to figure the situation out. I think she's really great in that movie. But not so much this one. But yeah, I think this is the best of the four. And I'm glad you uh, chose this one. Yeah, when I saw this an option that was that wasn't even like a down going, oh yeah, I'm going to watch LA Story again. Good. And then I went and bought it. And I'd forgotten that I picked this in between picking the films and then I just going and buying it. I was like, oh, I bought it. Good. I can watch my new Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, well, I had it in my voodoo, so <laughs> oops. <laughs> Oh, well. Um, so that is it for us here. Uh, where can we catch you on the social medias? All right. I am on Twitter, M-Y-U-Z-I-S-H-I-O-N. That spells musician. I'm on Twitch, but I haven't done Twitch in a while, so maybe I'll do some more gaming. All right. And uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter under Hit Rewind Podcast. And that is it for tonight. Thank God he said that long enough so he could cover up my yawn that was right beforehand. <laughs> I'm an old man. Jeez. All right, everybody. Have a good night. Later, guys.